What is up, Rooftop? How's it going? If you love Jesus, go and give him a hand clap. Come on. Uh, like Matt said, I'm Pastor Skyler. I'm the pastor of youth and young adults here at Rooftop Church. Um, that was a scene from Rocky Four. How many of y'all have seen that movie? Most people. It is, I think, the best Rocky movie. It is fantastic. And so if you've seen the Rocky movies, then you know Apollo Creed has a lot of confidence. He's one of the best boxers in the world. He's full of pride. Um, some could say he is cocky. You can see, by the way, that he dances around, showing off his wealth with live singers, uh, with backup dancers, with this big, I don't know what that was, like golden calf or something coming down from the ceiling, all to impress the crowd. Well, he's challenged by Ivan Drago from Russia. Drago is bigger and stronger and younger than Apollo. Apollo is so full of hubris, he doesn't train very seriously. He doesn't take the fight very seriously. You could see he was dancing around. He was talking smack uh, to Ivan. And come fight night, Apollo walks into the ring with dancers and fireworks and a full band uh, playing. And as the fight starts, it is quickly apparent that he is outclassed. His wealth, his arrogance, his pride, the dancers cannot help him in the ring. And despite his self-confidence and his pride, Apollo is killed in the ring by Ivan Drago. His pride literally killed him. His pride was his downfall. In other words, pride comes before the fall. Look at your neighbor and say, pride comes before the fall. That's the title of our message this morning. And so we are currently in week 19 of our sermon series called Isaiah for Today. Like Matt said, we're spending 10 months going through the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was an 8th century Hebrew prophet, which means he lived about 800 years before Jesus. And he spoke on behalf of God to the leaders of Jerusalem and to Judah. And he warned them if they persisted in their wicked ways that God would use the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon to judge them for all of their evil deeds. So in order to better understand Isaiah and study it, we have broken up the series into some smaller sections And our next installment, like Matt said, is called What Happened? The middle section of the book of Isaiah tells the story of what happened to the nation of Judah. God protects them, but then they are destroyed and exiled into captivity. Eventually, God brings them back. During this series, we're going to look at that portion of the book. The book of Isaiah is filled with poetry and prophecies, but it's also filled with some very interesting history. The book tells the story of God's people, of Judah, before, during, and after the devastation of Babylon. Isaiah had predicted the fall of his nation because of their sin, and eventually it happened. It's a gripping story that is violent and yet hopeful. And like Matt said, it is our story. Our mistakes catch up to us. Our enemies overtake us as well. But God has a plan to bring us back. He always does. Amen? So let's dive into our text for this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah 39. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 8. If you don't have a Bible, that is okay. We're going to have the words up on the screen for you so you can follow along. 
Starting in verse 1, at that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, try saying that five times fast, sent envoys with letters and a present to King Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, backup dancers, big stage, lights, all that stuff, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and he said, What did these men say? And from where did they come? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country. They have come to me from Babylon. And he said, Well, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who come from you whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, at least there will be peace and security in my day. So I want to give you some backstory and set the stage a bit for this passage so that this passage makes a little bit more sense. King Hezekiah became king at the age of 25, and he ruled for nearly 30 years. He did not build a temple. He didn't write a book. He didn't kill a giant. But the Bible says during his early years as king, he often did what was right in the Lord's eyes. Early in his time as king, he tried to pay off the ruler of the Assyrians, Sennacherib, who we've talked quite a bit about through this series. He tried to pay him to keep him from overtaking Judah. After that didn't work, he turned to God, and God miraculously saved the people of Judah for the time being. And at the age of 39, he fell very ill, almost to the point of death. He was on his deathbed, and the prophet Isaiah went to him and said, Get your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Well, Hezekiah wept bitterly, and he cried out to God God to remember his years of service, hoping that God would spare his life. And God answered. He says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. God saves him. Hezekiah miraculously recovers from this illness. Well, the king of Babylon, with definitely no ulterior motives at all, sends Hezekiah envoys or diplomatic representatives with presents and a letter just to say, glad you didn't die. Hope you get to feeling better. Glad you're doing all right. And Babylon, being one of the superpowers of the day, along with Assyria, And Judah was a small country with not a whole lot of military might. And they came all the way from Babylon to send Hezekiah their best wishes. I'm sure that was super flattering. He was credited first with beating Sennacherib. Um, He was on the verge of death. And then he survives. And now one of the mightiest rulers of the day sends him flowers and chocolates and well wishes. 
he probably felt very important, and I would venture to say he welled up with pride. They came all the way from Babylon to just visit little old me. I'm sure he felt very important, probably felt pretty good. And in order to impress the envoys of the Babylonian king's men, Hezekiah said, welcomed them gladly, showed them all of his wealth, all the money, treasures, spices, oils, his whole armory. Hezekiah paraded the men all over his house. Isaiah tells us there is nothing in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So Isaiah, a very wise man, asks, and I'm sure he already knew, uh, who were those guys? Where did they come from? What did they want? And Hezekiah, still oblivious to his blunder, says, they have come from a far country. They have come from Babylon to see me. Isaiah, concerned, says, what did you, what did you show them? Everything. <laughs> Everything. I cannot emphasize enough how dumb this is. Matt and I joked that this sermon could be about uh, Hezekiah's idiocy because this is such a dumb move. This would be like the president of the United States escorting the Russians or the North Koreans through Fort Knox and showing them our country's weapon defenses and all of our wealth. This would be like the president taking them to the Federal Reserve and showing them how to unlock all the multiple combination locks and giving them access to everything that we have. Hezekiah was showing a hostile nation his Fort Knox just to impress them because he was welled up with pride. He was showing the robbers how to rob him. Isaiah then tells him because of his blunder and his lapse of good judgment, Babylon's going to return all right and they're going to come and take everything from him, including his children. His son shall be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And this is fulfilled in Daniel chapter 1, when Nebuchadnezzar besieged and conquered Judah, taking Daniel and three men you may know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that doesn't happen for nearly 100 years. So what is Hezekiah's response, knowing that one day his country will be conquered, his descendants will be taken against their will, castrated, and forced to serve the Babylonian king because of his actions? Good. At least it won't happen to me. It is clear the pride and hubris that exists in his heart. God has blessed him, and he let the blessings of God go to his head. So I want to talk about pride. Uh, what is exactly is pride, and what does the Bible say about it? Well, pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There are tons of other biblical warnings about the sins of pride. But why is pride so strongly warned against? Why is pride a sin? Is it always a sin to feel proud of something that you have accomplished? Proverbs 18, 3 says, I hate pride and arrogance. That's God talking. I hate pride and arrogance. But it is very important for us to understand what precisely is the kind of pride that God hates. Well, I take great pride in being a husband. 
I love my wife. I love being her husband. I take great pride in being a pastor. I love my work as a pastor. And there isn't anything wrong with those things. And there's nothing wrong with you being proud of being a a mom or a dad or or a great husband or a wife or or your job. Uh, In fact, we're supposed to take pride in these things to an extent. The Bible encourages us to work hard so we'll be satisfied with the results. It says in Proverbs 12, 27, the diligent man prizes his possessions. But even this kind of pride can become a slippery slope if we end up taking credit for what we've done instead of thanking God for helping us. Pride is the deadliest of all sins because it leads to other sins. Sinful pride is refusing to recognize God's sovereign role in everything. Good pride, if we can call it that, is recognizing that apart from God, you can do nothing. And therefore, giving God the glory for the things that you accomplished. In other words, anything that dethrones God from your heart is deadly. It was the sin of pride which first led Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit in my own life. I have seen the effects of pride. Battling pride has always been an issue for me. I cringe and repent still to this day at things that I did when I was younger uh, out of the abundance of pride that was in my heart. And even after becoming a Christian, it is a daily battle. I love and hate being told good job after a sermon. I love it because it makes me feel good and I hate it because of how good it makes me feel. I love it because I feel validated by you. And I hate it because I feel validated by you. Early in my ministry career, I started a campus ministry at my college. I was 19. Started off great. People showed up. The band was awesome. I was preaching and teaching. And it went to my head. I was like, look at me. Look at this group that I'm leading. I wrote a book and then a magazine did an article on this cool young guy with tattoos leading this cool group of college students. And I thought, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. Look at me. Look at what I've done with no help, no church, no funds. Look at what I've built. Look at all the people here to see me speak. And guess what? After being warned of the dangers of pride, I did not listen. I kept leading out of the abundance of pride in my heart, and I lost it. I successfully built a campus ministry to zero people. The crowd dwindled to nobody. God allowed the ministry to fail. In fact, I think he personally shut the doors because of the hubris and the arrogance and the pride that was in my heart. And it led to a failed ministry. But out of the abundance of God's compassion, he gave me another chance. But not before teaching me a very, very valuable lesson. He let me enter into the ring cocky and arrogant, and he let Ivan Drago... Knock me out. Pride comes before the fall. Again, Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. That's why before I get up here on stage and teach, I always repent of the pride in my heart. And I ask God to remove that arrogant spirit and replace it with humility. Pride is a deadly, deadly thing because pride says, look at me instead of look at God. And Proverbs 21, 4 says, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked produce sin. 
When our heart becomes proud and full of pride, it leads to sin. It literally grows within us and it comes out in sinful actions, which is what we see in the case of Hezekiah. He's welled up with pride that the superpower Babylon would come to see him full of self-importance. He arrogantly shows them his riches and boasts about his wealth just to impress them. And so we like to ask a question here at Rooftop in all of our messages, so what? So what? What does this mean for us? What can we learn from Hezekiah? Well, what happened to Hezekiah isn't unusual. And if we aren't careful, the exact same thing can happen to us. We can become welled up with pride and we can allow it to affect our behavior. We read earlier that God hates pride. So let's take a look at the kind of pride that God hates as exemplified in the behavior of Hezekiah. I'm not as smart or creative as Pastor Matt, so my three points don't rhyme and they don't start with the same letter, but we're going to make do this morning, all right? God hates pride that is self-glorifying. God hates pride that seeks external validation. And God hates pride that is selfish. God hates pride that is self-glorifying. God blessed Hezekiah. There is absolutely no denying it. He was blessed with power. He was blessed with wealth. He was blessed with authority. God saved him from Sennacherib, the ruthless Assyrian ruler. God sent, literally sent down angels and wiped out 185,000 Assyrian troops. Jeez. Then God heals him from a disease. Some scholars believe it was the bubonic plague. God continued to bless him And it's as if he began to think that he was invincible. He let the blessings of God go to his head. He pleaded to God to save him, but there's no record of him ever thanking God for saving him from Assyria or from saving him from the disease. His blessings went to his head. His mentality became, look at my accomplishments. Look at my wealth and my treasures. Instead of, wow, look at what God has done for me. It was self-glorifying. And this is a trap that we can all fall victim to. When we look around our house, our cars, our jobs, our families, it's easy to say, wow, look at all that I have accomplished. Look at my wealth. Look at my treasures. Instead of thanking God and giving him the credit for your blessings. Hezekiah's downfall was he was showing his treasure, his storehouse, his armory. These were not his. These were God's. And every good thing we have is because of the goodness and the grace of our God. And we must give God the glory for our achievement and not ourselves. So stop and think for a moment. What about you? Look at your life. Are you thanking God for your blessings that you have? Or is there pride in your heart that is self-glorifying? Number two. God hates pride that seeks external validation. What do I mean by that? Well, Hezekiah was flattered when the envoy came to see him. He felt important, and out of the abundance of pride in his heart, he took them and showed them all of his riches. He was trying to impress them with his wealth. It appears that his feeling of importance and worth comes from impressing others and showing them or trying to convince them how important he is. It says Hezekiah showed them everything. It says he took them room by room everywhere. Look at this. Pretty pretty cool, right? Uh, look Look at that. Look at that. Oh, you like that? 
Look at all this. It's mine. I did it. And I'm sure he was welled up with pride as the men, oh, oh, did you see that? Wow. He's like, yeah, yeah, I did it. It's mine. Felt very important. He was impressing them. Well, Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In our own lives, how easy is it to look like that? Well, we post on social media all the highlights of our lives just so our friends will like. We are a culture that lives for the approval of others. And if that's you and you are constantly seeking value and importance from other people, I can promise you that it will be your downfall as it was Hezekiah's. Because what does that say about your heart that you need validation from other people? It reveals that what God thinks of you and what God says about you is not enough for you. When we seek validation from others, we are telling God he is not enough. I've had so many conversations with young people recently who feel depressed and hopeless because of what someone else thinks of them. And I tell them who they are in Christ and they say, yeah, yeah, I know God loves me, but, but nothing We are loved and seen and known by the creator of the universe. We are famous enough. We don't need validation from others. We don't need external validation from others when we have internal confirmation from God that we are seen, we are known, and we are loved. We don't have to live for the approval of others. As Christians, we cannot seek to serve man. We must seek to serve God and God alone. And God alone must be the one who gives us our validation, our value, and our worth. And lastly, number three, God hates pride that is selfish. Philippians 2, 3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. When Hezekiah is told what will happen Because of his actions, his kingdom will be lost, his people conquered, his sons will be castrated and made into slaves in the courts of the kings of Babylon. He sighs a big sigh of relief because at least it isn't going to happen to him. Can you imagine this kind of pride? There's no repentance at all. He's only worried about himself. He's only concerned with his life and not the lives of other people. This is the opposite of the way that we are called to be as the people of God. We are called to seek to serve others, not seek to save our own skin. We're not supposed to be the kind of people so welled up with pride that we can only think of ourselves. We're to be humble servants who seek to serve others. But I don't want you to miss the point here. You are making decisions right now that will impact future generations. The decisions you make now will impact other people. And if we're completely honest with ourselves, we probably have the same mindset that Hezekiah has. Oh, well, at least it doesn't affect me. Climate change. Huge, massive debt. But on a personal level, the unhealthy choices you make affect not only you, but the ones that you love. 
I have a friend who struggled with heroin addiction. And it did not just affect him. It ruined his marriage. His mother is scarred for life, having found him unresponsive on the bathroom floor because of an overdose. He's no longer allowed to see his children. And I'm not saying addiction is a choice, but he made a choice as a teenager selfishly to try heroin. And it ruined the lives of his whole immediate family. Parents, if you don't think yelling at each other and cussing at each other and arguing in front of your children will not negatively affect your kids, you're wrong. If you're getting out of a marriage, out of personal convenience, or because you want another man or you want another woman and you don't think that will affect your children, you are wrong. I can speak from experience. I love my parents dearly, but I can see in my own life where my parents' failed relationship haunts me. And I was scared to commit my life to Chandler. I had severe anxiety about it because of the brokenness that I saw as a child. And I'm no angel. I can see that how the things that I've done have affected people. In my pursuit of growing a popular campus ministry, I would say things that people wanted to hear instead of saying the hard biblical truths. And now none of those people are closer to serving Jesus than they were when they walked into the doors of my ministry. And sadly, I did not care because all that I was worried about and all that affected me was numbers. The things we do out of our own selfish pride do not just affect us, they affect the ones around us. And Hezekiah was full of pride And it caused him to sin. And Hezekiah's sin led to the suffering of others, but Christ's suffering led to the salvation of others. It's pretty good, right? Matt came up with that. (laughs) Jesus, during his time on earth, was harsher on pride than any other sin. And Jesus is the ultimate model of humility. Let's go back to Philippians 2. Let's read verses 3 through 8. It says, Do nothing from selfish, uh, selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death and even death on a cross. Christ humbled himself to the point of death, not for himself, not for our sake. It says he became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He was not full of self-glorifying, self-seeking pride. He was full of mercy, love, and humility. And he did for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. And out of the abundance of humility and love, Jesus went to the cross for the sins of humanity, emptying himself out, taking on the form of a man to die for us, for you, and for me. And this is our mandate as Christians, to be like Christ. And as Christ was humble, we ought to live our lives humbly not welled up with pride, not seeking to get the glory, not seeking to impress others, not seeking to serve only ourselves. We are to be humble and live in a way that glorifies him, seeking to honor him 
and to serve others. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your grace and for your love and for your mercy. And thank you so much for your word. And thank you so much for this reminder, so much for this warning, warning us of the dangers of pride that we can all fall victim to, Lord. And I ask that you would just be with everybody in here who struggles with pride, including me. Lord, I repent of the pride that exists in my heart right now as I stand here and speak. And if there's anybody in here who feels that they have to seek external validation from others, Lord, I ask that you would just give them a peace that they don't need to seek external validation because they have internal confirmation that you love them, that you care for them, that you see them and that you know them. And help us as we navigate this life. Help us to navigate being followers of Jesus who make followers of Jesus who make followers of Jesus. And we thank you so much for your son that he would come to earth to die for us, die the the death that we deserved and pay the penalty for our sins, moved with such compassion and humility to save us. Thank you. We're gonna end our prayer time with reciting the Apostles' Creed together. And if you don't know it, that is okay. We're gonna have the words on the screen for you. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I was really tempted to call it Apollo's Creed, but I didn't want to ruin the sacredness I didn't want to ruin the sacredness of uh, the creed so I waited till after to make the joke